Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and man, we're glad you decided to join us again this month. We got an incredible guest on the show for you today that we have not only talked about trying to get to Austin uh, through our clinic, but we finally got him pegged down. He's a busy guy. COVID's put uh, a lot of clamps on things, so he made time for us for the podcast Everybody say hello and welcome Coach Bo Sandoval to the show. Bo, say hello to everybody. Everybody, Donnie, thanks a ton for having me. I'm, I'm super pumped to be on. Love catching up with you, so let's get after it. Yes, sir. Thank you, Coach. And a uh, little bit about Bo. He's, he's currently he's the Director of Strength and Conditioning at UFC uh, Performance Institute and is doing some amazing things here. There, We'll let him get into that to a second. Now, I know Bo from – his days at Michigan when he was on staff there with Coach Favor and the rest of the crew, just an incredible staff and coaches there. And just I've known Bo since he was there and, and just through the years of, you know, just met him at conferences, talked to him, and just what an outstanding coach professionally. Uh, just, man, it just had a tremendous amount of good results with all the different teams you work with, Coach. Just looking at your resume, we'll let you delve into that. So, from here, won't you just tell everybody listening a little bit about you, your career, how you got started, and kind of that career path that led you to where you're at today? Real quick, Coach, go for sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in North America, I kind of jumped in like a lot of kids do. I, I went to school, got a bachelor's degree in, in exercise science, um, got, uh, got involved early on in some internships with the strength and conditioning department at the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, back then with with uh, the head coach Charlie Dudley and his crew and um, they allowed me to basically intern every semester from my sophomore to my senior year which helped with a lot of relationship building and allowed me to be able to um, to have the gall to ask them if I could stick around for two more years as a graduate assistant as I did my graduate studies and exercise phys at Southern Miss as well um so that, that's kind of how I got my feet wet. And then from there, like everyone else, you know, stressed out about trying to find my first job and and um, was fortunate enough to land a gig at a small Presbyterian school in Jackson, Mississippi, um, Bellhaven College back then. It's now a believe a division two school, Bellhaven University now um, was a tremendous experience for me. Three years there cutting my teeth, working with uh, about 14 head coaches that were all at the time way more experienced than me. So good, good spot to learn and figure out how to run a program, run a department, do it by myself. Um, and also try to support all these coaches and what their endeavors were with each of their programs. Um, from there, I, I had, was fortunate enough to apply for a position and now shot in the dark, got an interview with the U S Olympic committee in Colorado Springs um, as an SNC coordinator, which is basically like a utility player on the with the strength department globally for them. And um, upon the first few months of being there, was pretty heavily involved with um, with freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling as well as judo. And that kind of led me down a path of being specialized in acrobat and combat sports um, for the next almost three years with the, with the OTC. Um, so all of my time was spent with wrestling, boxing, judo, taekwondo, fencing, 
um, on the acrobatic side, men's gymnastics, as well as men's and women's, excuse me, diving. Um, and so, uh, fast forward a few years later, got, uh, an opportunity to join coach Mike favor, um, out at the university of Michigan to sort of build and expand on their Olympic sports program that they had there. Uh, so when we got there, there were, I believe, four of three of us full-time coaches. Um, and we essentially in the next eight, over the next eight years, grew that into a, an 11 person staff and added in a couple additional weight rooms and really tried to help catapult university of Michigan athletics into the, into the current status of, of elite athletics. They were behind a little bit. They were one of those institutions with a big pocketbook, but they were stingy with it. And so we had to, we had to loosen them up a little bit, but um, built a fantastic program there. It was a tremendous experience for me um, to learn a lot of skills around leadership. And I got to manage some coaches while I was there. I got to, to get involved with the uh, administration quite a bit. Um, Coach Favor was a big role in that and allowing me to get my feet wet with dealing with um, various athletic directors from different, you know, different walks of life there. Um, and really be a key player in some of the decision-making processes around some of our facility expansion and some of our personnel management, um, which set me up nicely when an opportunity came around the UFC, which they were looking for a department head, but also um, someone that could be fully integrated with the other performance departments. Um, And then the caveat to that was they wanted someone that had either a, a a combative sporting background or um, at least experience in weight classification sports, which is when there's a whole, when there's a weight cutting aspect, there's a whole nother dynamic to preparation and, and dieting and things like that. So, um, my time at the OTC came in pretty useful through that process. And, uh, here we are, I've been here, we opened up the, the, uh, performance Institute in 2017. So it's been a little over three full years now, and, uh, we've added additional institutes in Shanghai, China with a couple more, uh, on the way. And, um, and yeah, we're, we're putting on fights almost every weekend through, through this year, through COVID and and you name it. So, um, it's been, it's been a good time. It's been a good run and, uh, I'm not done yet. (laughs) I love it. Hey, just, just listen to that. That's an incredible, uh, story. Just listen to kind of some of the things you brought up and, did you ever see yourself working in the role you're in now at UFC? Was that something you planned for? Or is it just kind of, how did that happen, coach? You know, I think when you're young, you you have aspirations of wanting to um, take all of your, your learning, take all of your, your progression of your skill sets that you're building upon your after and eventually turn that into some sort of leadership role. Um, whether you're directing a department or if you're, you know, at least in the upper echelon of, of managing it. And, but you don't know exactly, you don't, you don't have any clarity. You don't have the foresight yet to really understand, you know, what that might look like. You have some role models that you can look at and you can aspire to want to sit in, or stand in their shoes. But um, so, yeah, I, I didn't foresee any of that. Um, for me, for a long time, the upper echelon was essentially you're either going to be in pro sports or, a uh, you know a power five institution on a university setting um and so as the years flew by we started to see and i'm sure you recognize the same thing um just new opportunities popping up you know i was yeah. meeting colleagues that spent six years as snc coaches at nasa 
And I met other colleagues that spent, you know, previous half a decade um, with a special forces installation. And so you started to just recognize there's, man, there's a lot of other employment opportunities out there for strength and conditioning professionals outside of elite collegiate sports and, and, um, and professional sports. And so um, as the, as that kind of started developing, I guess the, the wonder starts to, to kick around in your head, like, well, I wonder what opportunities may or may not pop up. Um, that's always interesting. But when I got the, uh, the email from a recruiting company around this position, it was a, it was a total surprise. Um, and, and one that you would be like really intrigued about. It's very interesting but also have a lot of reservations. You know, you're talking about the biggest fight league in the world that has never done high performance before. Yeah. They've never done supportive athlete services like this in-house before. So there's a lot of reservations on, you know, I don't know how good they're going to be at it. I don't know how prepared and how set up they are for us to actually be successful in what we're doing. Um, so that took a lot of research and investigation through the interviewing process and, and really trying to vet and understand what their missions were what they were putting in place to support it and what type of personnel they were bringing to the table other than, than guys like myself. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. And it, it definitely something I, I would say when I was coming out of graduate school or even in my first couple of professional roles did not have the foresight to see something like this. No, that's great. I think it's interesting how, because you mentioned uh, playing a utility role at the USOC. I, I think that, you know, looking back over your career now to where you're at, like you've got to have something in there that you got to be a go-getter, right? You can't look at a job or an opportunity as like, oh, it's too small. I'm not going to get nothing out of that. You got to use those opportunities that you get, those small, insignificant ones mm-hmm. that you think is not really, maybe doesn't have a lot to do with what you're doing, but it's actually preparing you for, like you just said, when that opportunity arises, you'll right. be ready when it comes. But if you shrug it off, you won't be ready. So it's a good point. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot to be said for, you know, a lot of times in a lot of these institutions, when you're cutting your teeth, you'll get uh, you'll get less mainstream sports, you know, things like golf or shooting or and you'll think to yourself like, all right, I'm doing this to earn my stripes. And what I always try to have an open mind about is um, there may be a skill set that I might be able to pick up off of how this particular type of athlete trains and how they prepare yeah that may be of benefit to my toolbox later on down the road um so you know when it came to you know a lot of people would say they had to babysit the male cheerleaders on their on the cheerleading squad and for me it's like that's really just a high power gymnast so let me see what i can take from these guys and their coaches what are they working on because they're they're pretty explosive when you look at relative strength and power like they're good at it and it's not all from just products in the weight room something has to do with their training and and what they're going through practice to practice so my my outlook was always what can i take from it and how might i be able to then put that into say a defensive end later on or uh or a a greco-roman wrestler you know how do i how do i put that to use for me so um i got some advice around that around just appreciating sports and appreciating the depths at which athletes go through to prepare from guys like Charlie Dudley. Um, you know, Brian Wiseman was a, was a, a classmate of mine at Southern Mississippi. Um, he's at Old Miss now as a, as an Olympic sports director there. Um, I got a lot of that from him. I got a lot of that from Melissa Moore who's at LSU now, another classmate of mine at, at Southern Miss. Um, Josh Stoner, who was at Missouri for a long time, was a was a good uh, positive influence on me in terms of just 
appreciating the time that we had with different varieties of athletes and being able to put that to work for me later on. So that was kind of my outlook on it. And that's where some of the more obscure things like pistol shooting and fencing um, kind of help be prepared for things that are off the wall. Like MMA by all means is, is it not a conventional sport? Yeah. Um, when you look at the methods that they, they train by the different martial arts that they utilize, some of the spiritual backgrounds that come from those martial arts and some of the, the, the mentality and the, the, the mental aspect on how those athletes perceive their competition. Um, all those other little experiences definitely helped with being able to cope and also being agile and empathetic to, to building constructive programs for these types of athletes. Coach, I know you have worked with track and field. If you can work with track and field, <laughs> there's really not yeah. anybody you can't with the egos and personalities and quirkiness yeah. and those coaches and athletes and the different training thoughts and philosophies. Coach, you've done that. You can coach anybody. I'm convinced. <laughs> you know, th th those were definitely some of my favorites. I mean, I, I was able to be involved with that Michigan track and field team for almost eight years and um, through a couple different head coaches on the men's and women's side. And um, one thing that always motivated me, I would hear coaches and administrators and and even players and teammates all the time make that. And you, you've heard it a million times. I just can't work with that guy. Yeah. I just can't work with that person. I just can't work with that team. I just cannot, I, you know, I can't stomach working with that group or whatever. You hear it all the time. And I just wanted to never have to say that. I wanted to never have to say, like, I could not figure out how to work with that person. I couldn't work with that guy. Instead, I, I've like always, I love it when someone's like, I don't know how he did it, but both figured out how to talk to that dude. I don't know how he did it, but he, so a lot of times they, I got weird, weird nicknames like the whisperer. So, um, that's Funny awesome. story. Actually, um, some of our our buddies over at the NSCA there for a while when uh, when Dr. Greg Hoff was was our president for a while, which if you know Dr. Hoff, he's very well studied, very intelligent man, big contributor to our field. Um, but sometimes a hard egg to crack. And, and there for a while, my nickname around the NSCA was the Hoff Whisperer. So um I don't know if it comes from my own sheer enjoyment or, or just the simple fact that I need, there's a task and we got to get the task done. But I've always prided myself on just just wanting to be able to figure out how to communicate with someone, how to get to to an effective point where me and someone could could effectively work with each other, whether it's an athlete or a team or a coach or, or whatever. So um, I love that aspect of it. I think that's a cool, challenging piece to what we do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think some of your probably some of your better athletes sometimes put up that big, that hard kind of shield, and a lot of people can't get through that. So it takes it takes somebody like yourself that not only you you're aware of that, but you don't let that kind of turn you away. And you and at some point, you know, you can break them down and get to them, but you got to be patient mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah, so. I, I tell I spoke to a group of students. I don't know if you're familiar with the. Um, there's a group now. Um, it's an online internship. They call it the merge. And oh yeah. Aware of the merge. So I, I got to speak to the merge, um, just a, a few months ago. It was awesome. One of the, one of the most fun conversations that I've had in a while. And a, a student actually asked me about that and was like, what did, okay, how do you, is that just organic or do you have a process of how you do that? Like where you're speaking about breaking someone down and being able to get to the point where you can get to them. You can be influential over what they're doing. And um, I kind of broke it down to them in three steps. And basically, and, and you could carve those steps up however you want it. But basically, step one is just validate the things that they do well first. 
you know, regardless if it's someone you're debating with over a topic or it's a coach or if it's a player, validate what they do well. Step two is then identify a, you know, consent on a, you two come together on a, on a, on a problem. What's, what's the issue we're trying to solve together? What's the mission that we're going after together? And then you have to be able to have some sort of um, attack or plan or method to be able to conclude the conversation with and saying, okay, we're going to go, this is what we're going to address at this point, whether it's 1% of the problem or you're going after the, you know, the whole, the whole taco at once, you know, we're going to, we're going to tackle this thing, but you got to have to have some, you got to conclude the conversation with some level of fulfillment around, okay, here's how we're going to address this now. And so obviously there's varying degrees of all those three steps, validating what they do, identifying problems, and then, finding a method for solution. Um, the ones that you build stronger relationships over time, those steps are, are going to be more exacerbated. They're going to get more detailed. They're going to get down to the point. Um, in the beginning, they might be more vague. You know, the, the resolutions we might go after might be tiny. They may seem minuscule to you. They almost might seem like a waste of time. But what you're doing when you do those little minuscule resolutions with them is you're winning them over. And so that that's always kind of been my approach um, with dealing with those. And then the motivation behind some of it, too. I had a, a coach that I worked with for a while uh, at Michigan Women's Basketball. Her name's Kim Barnes Arico. Um, anyone that's ever been around her, you know, she's she's a very hard nosed coach. She's she's very direct, um, demands a lot of attention, demands a lot of uh, of just uh, attention to detail when when executing what she wants done. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things she always told me, she's like, hey, I know you love working with so and so and so and so. They're five star athletes. They have unbelievable heart. They'll do anything you ask them to. Those are the easy ones. Everybody wants to work with the easy ones. What I need you to be able to do is to get through what the the, bot, the other two or three that won't listen to anything we say. I need you. I need you to convince them. I need you to get those are the ones that you're really getting paid for. Can you get them to jump on the ship and actually contribute to what we're doing? Um, and I took that to heart. I thought about that in terms of my colleagues, in terms of my family, in terms of kids that I was coaching or athletes I was working with. It's like, you're right. The easy ones, they're great. And God bless them. I'm glad I got them because they keep us sane a lot of the times. But what my real challenge is, how can I can convince the others, the more difficult ones to make some substantial changes, which will not only potentially improve their game, but also maybe even their livelihood or maybe even the, you know, the educational path they're on the financial path they're on. So, uh, I always took that to heart and I felt like that was something as a coach, you should be able to do that. If you're a coach, you should be able to influence difficult people. Yeah, no, I think those are the, I agree with you, coach. I think even this Pat this year before COVID hit, we had some, you know, some issues we were dealing with, with some, some difficult uh, athletes and whatnot. And I think those seasons or those times can be challenging, but those are where you grow the most because you got to figure oh, yeah. it out and you're uncomfortable and so it makes you have to learn a new way of not only looking at a problem, but a new way of approaching, like you just said, and being patient. At the end of the day, you've got to be patient and work through the process, like you said. So uh, it's good stuff. And it's kind stressful of, you yeah. know, when you're doing that. It's stressful. That's not the funnest of times until no. you actually get somewhere. Then you're like, whew, now that was that was impressive. Yeah. That was amazing. But it's, it's a stressful process. Coach, just kind of to bridge on that question – I know you've got a background in a Olympic weightlifting, you and your wife is Amanda, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. So the one thing, so this is just kind of a personal question too, that I've had for 
wanted to ask you for years and I'm sure everybody else would love to hear it, but um, talk a little bit about mentality. I've talked to your athletes. You didn't know this. Mm-hmm. I've asked senior athletes at Michigan and ask them, what's coach Bo like? Give me like, oh, he's intense and he's awesome. I mean, they, they would say these things about you, but talk a little bit about, you know, you've got the X's and O's of uh, being a strength coach of program design you know, periodization, writing things out. But how do you, and people talk about culture, but I think a big piece people miss a lot of times, how do you instill a, a mentality that, that I feel like you've done such a good job just watching your programs be successful and even just speaking personally one-on-one to your athletes, you've done a great job of doing. How have you done that over the years, Coach? I think a key thing with that is, number one, you have to understand your role with each team there's like layers to it right you gotta understand your role within the team that's different it depends on how that team is managed how's the coaching staff work how you know then you gotta understand your role with each athlete some athletes they're gonna utilize you differently and the only way that you can reflect upon that is you have to you have to be a service driven coach you have to understand i'm providing a service i'm trying to provide a wow experience while at the same time getting this person to be either a better contributor to their own individual performance or a better contributor to the overall team, to a team, if it's a team sport. Um, And so um, once I can understand that, what my utility is, what's my utility? Why is it, how is this person plan to use me? How's this coach plan to use me? Um, Then I can be purposeful with my direction. I can be purposeful with how I speak. I can be purposeful with how, I communicate how I how I prescribe, how I carry things out, what the tempo is like, how relaxed it needs to be or how aggressive it needs to be. Once I understand my utility, my kind of my purpose, um, I feel like we're we do a disservice to our profession. If you think that the utility is just one fold, if you think it's just one operation and that's how you do it and that's it, um, I think you really limit uh, just how diverse, how dynamic how versatile an SNC coach, an educated SNC coach can be. Um, you're, you're essentially, you know, you're lumping them in with, with just a, you know, a broad term of coach. Well, we play, you know, we wear many different hats in that coaching role. Um, and so that's what I've done. You, you know, you, you, when you ask the question, you cover several different genres of sport, different age groups, different genders that, that I've worked with over the years. Um, and all of them have a different, idea in their head on how they want to utilize me and it's my job first and foremost to understand what that is um so whether it's a professional fighter now they walk through the door in the first 30 seconds to to you know to three minutes i'm going to understand what they're trying to get out of me mm-hmm. whether i ask it directly or they just start you know blurting it out in terms of what their ambitions are and why they're there it was no different when i met you know a five-star recruit at the university of michigan for the first time and his family um, yeah, sure. They want to ask where you're from, where did you get your accent from? How long you've been here? The basic stuff, but eventually they're going to ask, well, like, tell me what you do with the team. What's, what's your role with the team? And all the time, my, my number one thing is, um, is to, I want to take your aspirations and your ambitions, however good you want to be. You want to be an all American. You want to be all conference. You just want to make the starting lineup, whatever. Um, and I'm going to do whatever I can to help you achieve that as long as it's in the same direction of the mission of our coaching staff, of our athletics department within the confines of our code of conduct and our ethics. 
the same way I would now in, in this game, this game is just a little bit more individualized. Um, we work with, you know, all of our fighters are private contractors. So now it's more, okay, you're seeking me for assistance. Um, how can I be of service to what they're each individual companies? How can I be assistance to your company and how you're trying to manage yourself and step yourself up the rankings? What's your plan of action? And then I will let you know just how useful I can be on um, in that type of, uh, in that type of environment. So I think that's the biggest key is knowing, having an understanding of what the athlete or team having an understanding of what they intend to use you for. Mm -hmm. um, and then deciding based on your skill set, your tools, your experiences, okay, here's what I can bring to the table and here's what I'm going to enlighten them with. Um, and that sets the tone for everything. That kind of sets the table. Um, lets us know which course is coming first. Some teams like to eat dessert first. Um, and that's what we need to be prepared to do. Some want to get right to the steak and potatoes. So that that's, um, that's kind of always been my philosophy around that. And, and I think they show, they, they have always shown a great appreciation when they recognize it, like, Hey, I know when I, when I need to be a hammer and I know when I need to be a pillow. Um, I think they have great appreciation for that. They can see you shift gears. You're not just one mode, one method, you know, straight ahead and downhill every single time they see you. Um, and I think the level of comfort goes through the roof once they realize you're a regular human being. You just happen to have a skill set that belongs in a weight yeah. room or a field, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's key right there, what you just said. I think that's so, so important, those different layers you just mentioned with every team and every head coach and staff is so different. You know, I always have kind of kind of equated to like you got to find ways how can you add value to that team and to that staff mm -hmm. so it may be different right mm -hmm. what may add value to one team or staff may not be the same thing that they like with another team or staff so it's critical 100 100 it's all contextual you know seeing yeah. what the context is and then and then being you know i think you have to be motivated and hungry to slide into whatever piece you're fit for for that particular team or individual instead of kind of preconceiving, oh, here's what I'm going to do with this team. Pump, pump the brakes on that, on that early decision-making. Just wait, get to know the team, get to know that's the so personnel. Good. Oh, yeah. And then and then decide how you're going to approach it. That's, you know? that's, that's a great point, Coach. That is so good, for, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, kind of a next question for you. This is the Team Behind the Team podcast. Coach Bo, how would you describe the team performance model? How would you, in your own words, obviously now you coming from Michigan, you kind of had some of that there, but now for sure the UFC, it looks like you guys have a pretty, pretty strong team there, performance team. How would you describe that model uh, today, Coach? So with our team here, I mean, it's, I would say the, a lot of the same descriptors that a lot of good high performance teams would would use to describe there. I would say one of the unique ones here is just our level of integration. I mean, they have really thought out how to set us up to where we can essentially be in each other's lap almost every day. Uh, if you look behind me, all these desks, these are all the desks of my colleagues, uh, the director of every department that we have here, along with their assistants, our interns are in here. If we're going to be fully integrated, we need to be on top of each other all the time. And then we can be engaging in conversations. We have an awareness. We have we have over 620 athletes on our roster um, all over the globe. So in order to have a certain level of awareness of all these different moving parts, um, 
we've kind of got to be nosy with each other all the time. So from a design standpoint, that's how this, this whole facility and the logistics of this campus are set up for. So that, that's a very unique thing because it's not just the mentality of the staff. Um, this was orchestrated by um, the vice presidents and, and, and the ones that put the thought into generating this department, the, the performance Institute. Whereas a lot of times, um, you know, on the university level, you know, at the university of Michigan, the, by design, we're, we're very decentralized. So then you, you have to put the effort in to figuring out ways to make it logistically make sense where you can interact with your counterparts, where you can be an immersive piece, uh, part of a, of a team, um, which involves a, a lot of hustle, but also a lot of times it's impossible. Um, you know, sometimes you can get it done, but depending on the parameters, it's, it's tough, especially when you have some collegiate coaches that will have nine, 10, sometimes more sports than that, that they're participating with. It's tough to be a heavily integrated piece with everyone else that's touching that sport, medical, um, perhaps psychology, nutrition, you know, all these other things. Whereas here it's, it's from the foundation of the building, it's set up to put us in that position. Um, so that's very unique. And personally, I love it. It takes a lot of pressure off the individual. It allows us just like uh, a quarterback or, or a, uh, a linebacker to rely on the rest of their offense or defense. Mm-hmm. It allows us to rely on our colleagues when it comes to problem solving, when it comes to um, digging through diagnostic data, when it comes to watching you know, fight film and, and things along those lines. We've got each other to sort of tackle all of our issues with. So um, I, I particularly love that aspect of it. I also love the fact that some of our entry level positions, some of our manager positions get to interact with our directors, get to interact with our vice presidents. They get to interact sometimes with even some of our senior vice presidents. I love that level of transparency. Um, whereas a lot of times when I was an assistant strength coach, I may never speak to an AD, um, or I may have never gotten to, you know, have, uh, uh, candid conversations That's with the true. director of our medical team, you know? Yeah. So that aspect, I love that for some of our, our younger staff members or our, the ones that were a little bit less experienced, the fact that they get to get immersive <laughs> with some very highly experienced people on a daily basis. Yeah, that's good. I, I, you remind me, uh, I had a chance to visit the the New South Wales Institute of Sport a couple of years ago in Australia. Okay. Yeah. And it, it was very similar to the description, even like looking at, you know, looking at everything in your office there, just they want everybody in the same room so that there's a conversation being held, problems are being solved. Whereas, you know, I, I can speak from experience just like you can in college, you're very siloed because you know, one area may be far across campus or down, down ways. And by the time you get everybody together, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a miracle just to get everybody on the same page to get in a room, mm-hmm. to have a conversation about several athletes. So it can be challenging. Uh, the book, I don't know if you've read the book, the uh, team of teams by Stanley McChrystal, but it's an incredible mm-hmm. book. He talks about that coach in uh, just even how the buildings are laid out can yeah. create red tape, bureaucracy, politics, silos, sure. where, you know, it just lowers trust levels. It's hard to move things really fast. Whereas he, the one thing he did to this, he was talking about the, the, I think of the Iraqi war, he made sure he started getting everybody in the same room so things could communicate and move faster. And there wasn't all these kind of, kind of policies and protocols you had to go through. So definitely, uh, I definitely uh, like what you're saying there about what you guys got going on at UFC. That's awesome. 
Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I don't take claim to it. It was something brand new to me getting here. I mean, it was, it was in a lot of instances, a, a breath of fresh air in the beginning, a little bit intimidating, you, you know, um, but um, once you, you know, you get that equipped with great personnel and, and awesome people, I mean, it just brings us that much closer together. So it's been, it's been outstanding. Coach, I'm, I'm dying to ask, what's it like working with, what's the difference working with fighters and college athletes? What's, what's the difference coach, if you had to say it? You know, there's, there's definitely some, I think it's, it's not that hard to point out the similarities, highly competitive, want to get their hands on the championship, have gone through a lot to get to where they're at. You know, all those, those commonalities, um, a couple differences. One, these are professional athletes. So they're, you know, they're prize fighters. They're competing for a paycheck. Um, in a lot of ways, some of our Catholic college athletes are doing that in terms of, you know, um, scholarship dollars and things like that. But, um, I would say probably the biggest difference is, uh, the diversity of the motivation for competition. Mm-hmm. You would think that every fighter, they just want to get in there because they like to fight or, you know, that it has something to do with the almost the violent aspect of the sport. But man, the the motive, I love asking that question when they come in because the motivation and why they compete, it's all over the map. Um, whether it's they're trying to overcome, you know, fear when it comes to one on one confrontation and they just at some point figured out they were good at fighting. And that's it. They keep every time they step in the cage, just that's their battle with that fear. Um, some of them, they hate fighting. They hate all, every aspect of it. They just happen to be really good at it and they're ultra competitive and they just want to win. So they know, okay, this is the thing that I'm really good at. And I want to win, even though I don't necessarily like it, I want to do it because I, I can't go to sleep at night unless I win something. We literally have people that think that way. And then we definitely have some that are like, Hey, there, to me, there's nothing better than a good old fashioned fist fight. Um, and that's their motive. Some were abused as children. Some come from a troubled background and, um, you know, along the way they learn how to defend themselves. They learned a martial art or something like that, figured out they were pretty good at it. And now here they are as a, a professional fighter. So the, the, ver- the, 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 diversity of the motivation of what got them here that I love hearing that part. It's very different. Um, and a lot of times it's not, it's not something that's nurtured from like a parent trying to help a kid get yeah. into college or help a kid get a scholarship. It's not nurtured by that. It's not nurtured by, you know, um, you know, sponsorship thing, you know, Nike's not running around recruiting kids to come, you know, to play, yeah, yeah. to play this or anything like that. Um, so that, that where that motivation comes from is very different in a lot, a lot of cases. And I love hearing it because uh, it's, it's different all the time. It, there's so many, and, it is very cool. You know, we have some guys on our roster, 44, 45 years old. Now we have some that have over six or I think the record is over five hours of competition time inside that octagon. The longest bout's 25 minutes. That's a championship fight. So it accumulates six hours of fight time in that octagon. That's a lot of bouts that you're taking on. And so across that time period, their motivation shifts and changes over the years that I love hearing that too. You know, I'm a daddy now and Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, my, why I step in that cage is very different than why I stepped in it when I was 21 years old. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. So I love hearing those kind of stories and where that comes from. Um, and, uh, I would say another, it's not a difference, but another similarity that really excites me about the job that kind of keeps my blood pumping is, um, learning them as people, 
understanding, you know, what are your aspirations after fighting or outside of fighting currently, or, you know, what are the things that you spend your time on? What's valuable to them? I, I just love hearing, I'm a, I'm a people person by nature. I just like to meet people. I could, you know, I could talk to that wall and have a good time with it. If, if you gave me enough, if you gave me enough time, but I love, it. I love hearing those stories come through the door, um, where they're from, you know, how they got to where they're at, uh, uh, you know, what they believe in, what, what, their uh, belief structures built on um, what their aspirations and plans are. You know, that's a very entertaining side of the job for me. So. Coach, you got a background, don't you, in some jujitsu, don't you? I, I did. I did. Uh, actually, Charlie Dudley got me into jujitsu when I was at Southern Miss. Um, yeah. My last year of undergrad, and then I also did it through my two years of graduate school. Yeah. Um, and then I dabbled a little bit here and there since then. And then two years ago, I dove in pretty deep here in town with a gym that's pretty close to our house. So now I'm, I'm pretty much a lifer now. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't foresee yeah. that journey stopping. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So I got to this, this is kind of a fun question for you. So Mark Henry, again, it's not UFC, but he was WWE. He's retired now. Yep. Yep. Lives here in Austin. He's come to the weight room all the time, and and I he he messed around and he's a, he, at the time he was well over four hundred pounds. He grabbed me, and pinned me on the ground, and I have taken some martial arts. I can't I wouldn't say I'm like great at it, but I have never felt so hopeless in my entire mm -hmm. life. Coach, have you ever locked up with any of those guys? Played around with them? You've had to at I'm, some point. I'm gonna tell you a really funny story. I actually <laughs> locked up with someone last night. Oh I no. I was at a night class, and I, I'm pretty good friends with our our head professor there. And, um, I rolled with a couple of guys and another round came up and he's like, Hey, I want you to roll with this girl. And I'm like, okay. You know, so this girl comes walking over and I looked at him like, I know what you're doing. So I, I knew the girl. I knew who she was. This, this is a couple time youth world champion. She's got a couple of pan kid titles, just turned 13. She's like five, seven, 135 pounds soaked and wet. So she's, she's, she's a big kid right, for a 13 year old. Yeah. Highly skilled, very highly skilled. And when you roll in a gym, typically the rounds are around five minutes. We were doing six minute rounds last night and then you change partners, you go to another one. So I'd done two previous, she had done two previous. So we, we lock up, we, we lock up, we get started in the first, you know, I don't know, half a minute, whatever. We end up scrambling, getting down to the ground. Um, and I ended up getting into her guard. And I spent, I'm 190 pounds. I spent the next six minutes trying to get out of this girl's guard and couldn't do it. So if, you, if you're from the jujitsu world, you know about guard passing. It's like, you can't be offensive until you can pass the guard. So I spent six minutes trying to pass this 13-year-old girl's guard. And all I kept thinking to myself was if I was another 13 year old girl and I felt this girl grab a hold of my wrist as strong as she was, and she was breaking my posture down. I mean, she was, if we were in a, in a point scoring system, she was just racking points up, transitioning on me and keeping me in her guard. And, um, and uh, so when you, when you talk about like, you know, Mark Henry, who was a former weightlifter, by the way, as well, powerlifter, weightlifter, but um that's how I felt with this 135 pound, 13 year old girl last night. Um, and she's phenomenal. She's, she's got a couple of fight to win titles as well. Um, she's originally from, from Bulgaria. She's been training jujitsu for a few years, but I mean, I don't know if they would have gave me 10 minutes if I'd have been able to pass her guard. So anyway, the round ended, I still hadn't passed her guard. I couldn't do anything. She almost subbed me a couple of times. 
Um, but that's what I love about that sport is you can, it, it really doesn't, it, it's so, um, it's so uh, unforgiving. I, I just imagine one day this girl's like at a library and some boy, you know, speaks to her inappropriately <laughs> or says something to her and, she tears, so arm, and she tears his arm off. <laughs> just like, yeah. you know, but um, that's a great you know, story, Bo. Yeah. And that, that was, that was, you know, just last night, ironically. So yeah, um, it keeps you humble. Doesn't it? it does. Jiu-jitsu will let you know <laughs> right away that uh, you're not as tough as you think you are. Awesome. That's good. Good story, man. That, that, that cracks me up. Uh, definitely don't, don't mess around with those girls, man. You never know. No, the quiet no. ones are the, are the ones that are the toughest ones. So yeah. Um, yeah. Coach, we're almost done with the show. I just maybe time for maybe one or two more questions. Sure. Just uh, speak to, you know, briefly, what are you guys doing athlete monitoring? What are some of the big things you're doing? What's that you find most effective and, and kind of gets the sure. best results with your, your, your guys and, and gals? Because we're dealing with individuals, I mean, the, the level of communication has to be kind of through the roof. We're all, we all have the autonomy to um, manage and, and engage different levels of communication, whether it's a fighter that's local right here in Vegas or it's someone in Poland um, that we might only see in person a couple of times, excuse me, a couple of times a year. So um, athlete monitoring for us is another level of communication. We can, we can have a device provide us with data. That's, that's a communication in between our verbal or maybe email, text message, that kind of stuff. Um, so from the onset, um, we, we used Omega Wave quite a bit. Um, we had a partnership with Omega Wave where we had them in-house. We were able to do assessments first thing in the morning with fighters here, but we also had units that we shipped globally all over the place. I think at one point we were over 350 units across the globe where athletes were doing um, their own assessments first thing in the morning. And then that was coming to a central hub. So we'd have an understanding of what their level of readiness was, what the parasympathetic and, and sympathetic dominance looked like, what their HRV scores were looking like, um, which was very helpful. Um, it is a snapshot. You only get kind of that morning snapshot of what's going on. And then you try to put, you know, you're looking at trend, longitudinal trends across time and trying to paint a picture of how either the training is influencing them or maybe things outside of training are negatively yeah, influencing the process. Yeah. So um, we've now here recently just partnered with Aura Ring. Um, we've, and when we, when we do any sort of partnership or anything like that, particularly with a tech device, um, you're looking at several months of first digging through the validation of that device through previous studies, mm -hmm. but then also several months of our own investigation where our team of sports scientists will take on the device. They'll do certain levels of studies and, and trials with it prior to us saying, okay, we're going to invest in this product and now we're going to move forward with it. Um, so after months and months of um, digging around with Aura Ring and trying to figure out how effective it could be for our athletes, we do have a, a formal partnership with them now. Um, and we have, uh, you know, roughly six or 700 units to be able to utilize across the globe with um with our various fighters that are all over the place so i think um that partnership's about two weeks old now um and we have about I, quote me if i'm our sports scientists might chime in behind me here but i think we have around 60 of them that have been deployed so far um and so with that we do get some of the similar metrics that we were getting from omega wave it's just that we're getting them a little bit more live 
and the data has a lot less gaps because they're wearing it all day. Yeah. They're wearing it all day long. So, um, that's, that's going to be a useful tool from the monitoring standpoint. Um, we do utilize heart rate quite a bit in training and some organized styles of training. It's very difficult to, um, to get consistent heart rate data during things like sparring and wrestling. Um, the monitors get ripped off or they get, they get damaged or, or whatever. So we still try to do it. We still do it. We can gather some data off of it. It's just yeah. a lot of times it'll end up being inconclusive because someone ripped it off in the middle of the second round or, you know, something like yeah. that. But, um, so wearables are tough when you're actually engaged in the sport. Um, but we can, we can monitor again with things like aura ring, we can take a look at other vitals throughout the day during sleep. We can monitor sleep, um, and at least start to paint a picture across longitudinal data points and understanding how they're responding to the whole, um, the whole enchilada, the, you know, like you mentioned, the lifestyle plus the training plus yeah. the whatever recovery pieces where we're in, integrating with them. Um, and sometimes even the actual bouts themselves. Um, so, and, and it's all contextual, you know, we have some of the data we're monitoring, we're monitoring, we're flagging it because someone's just undergone an ACL repair or someone's just undergone, you know, orbital facial reconstruction. So we're, you know, we'll kind of asterisk and, and flag some of that data as it's coming across. So we have an understand of, understanding of how they're handling trauma, um, how they're handling the rehabilitative process. Um, mm -hmm. And it, for the most part, at least when we first onboard them with the device, we get some pretty solid baselines, unless again, they're onboarding while they're dealing with some kind of traumatic experience. Um, so then at least we have solid baselines. Then once they go through an injury or maybe they go yeah. through, yeah. um, and if it's not an injury, they just take a lot of damage and about, you know, we can understand some of those biomarkers when, when they're a little bit more suppressed or, um, show a little bit more signs of fatigue. Uh, we just have some context to put, to put with the objective data. Yeah, it's, that's good. I mean, like you said, you've got to have that plan, but then it's gotta be the fluidity of that's gotta be so paramount today. Right. Cause like you said, everything going out outside their life and then who knows how they're responding to whether yeah. it's competition or training or whatever, how they're adapting. And so that's pretty cool. I, I've, I've heard of the aura ring. That's cool. Y'all are using it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's in, we always get the questions like, okay, well, let's say you see all these red flags. Now, what do you do with the information? It's yeah. really a strategic conversation with, with our professionals as well as with the athlete and their team on, okay, this is what the data is telling us. It's not like, do we eliminate all training? It's like, what can we flex so that we can lean yeah. on the qualities that you still have going on that are being progressive and stay away from some of those qualities that are being diminished or being derailed a little bit. Um, it's, it's more of that, not just like, okay, you're red, take the day off, you know, don't come back till Monday. It's, you know, cause you're talking to highly motivated people that they have a mission that day. Hey, I need to get this sparring practice in. I need to get this technical wrestling session in. I need this. It's very important to my training camp. It's like, okay, so let's stay away. Your nervous system's a little fried. Let's stay away from efforts that are less than 30 seconds. Let's do more continuous, <laughs> slow paced technical drilling. We can get into conversations that way. And I always tell people, if you have data and that data is driving you towards making a decision, when you make that decision, you, you better have some sort of solution or some sort of backup plan mm -hmm. to occupy whatever that time is, whether it's active recovery or it's a diluted practice or, or you're reducing intensity, something. But don't just simply throw at them, hey, you're red, figure it out. Yeah. 
or just stop, you know, cause it, it's got, it's gotta be more constructive than, than that. And we should be able to offer that. We should be able to offer some, some solid suggestions along with all these things that we're identifying. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, definitely. I would imagine fighters, just high level elite athletes they they want to stay engaged and yes. stay productive and not waste time. So that's key. But, uh, well, Coach yeah. Bo, we are we're pretty much we're going to wrap it up. I know we got to get you to your next your next sure. uh, meeting. But uh, Coach, thanks so much. Where can everybody if, if wants to connect with you? If somebody wants to reach out, connect. What's the best, easiest way that somebody could do that, Coach? Sure. Um, uh, my Instagram is Bo B O dot Sandoval S A N D O V A L. Um, easy to find me on there. Uh, my Twitter handle is Oli O L Y Strength. Um, you can find me on there. Um, shoot me messages. Sometimes I'm a little slow, but I'm, I've got a pretty good track record. At least 99% of the time I always answer. So if there's a disgruntled one out there, that I haven't answered yet. Message me again. I promise you I'll get back to it. Um, that's what, that's one of my missions in life. Um, uh, my wife also has a small private studio here in Vegas as well, um, where we put up a little bit of information and, and we do some stuff with the local community here called ABS Performance. Um, you can find that on Instagram as well. But um, yeah, reach out anytime. The PI is an open book. I tell people, you know, other than our, our COVID situation we got going on now, normally our welcome mats out all the time. So um, there's no secrets here. Um, we love to share. We love answering questions. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We're definitely here for the straight community. Um, and we want to do our part in contributing back to the field. So coach, we appreciate it. I know that's, uh, that's on our bucket list to get out there at some point. Hopefully this COVID yes, stuff settles down and, uh, but we appreciate you making time for the podcast coach. We, we, we know you got a lot going on. We thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Donnie. I appreciate it. Um, I definitely, I've said it year after year, but I definitely am uh, waiting for that first opportunity to get over to Texas and just to visit with you guys and, and catch up and and uh, to really see, I mean, you've been doing it a while there now and just see kind of what you've cultivated over the years and, and um, yeah. how you guys are handling a lot of our current issues and, and how you guys are getting the next generation of coaches ready to go out and tackle the world of performance. So I'm excited about getting into that one day. Yes, sir. Open invitation. So anytime, hopefully, uh, hopefully sooner than later, coach. Appreciate that. Yep. Well, hey, that's it for the team behind the team podcast. I'm Donnie Mabe, your guest, Bo Sandoval, the man, the myth, the legend. We got him. If you have not had a chance to meet Bo or connect with him, do it ASAP. Uh, like I said, he's an incredible coach, but to me, just an incredible man, his beautiful family, the character, the level of excellence and integrity, that he leads in life and in work is outstanding. Connect with him if you haven't, and we will catch you on the next episode. We're out of here. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.